Okay, we're uh, beginning a new series today. Um, by the way, happy Mother's Day. Uh, I have two wonderful mothers in my life. Um, my mother and my mother-in-law, uh, they're incredible people, and uh, moms are incredible. Um, but we are studying a new series today called Meals with Jesus, and we've even put a study guide with this because while it's summer and all of that, um, we, we don't take time off from continuing our pursuit of God and going deep with Him. So uh, these are in the, in the back, um, telling you that about now, telling you that now or I'll, I will forget. So, why this series? Just think about meals, eating. I mean, meals, meals carry a power with them. Um, when, I, when I reflect on my upbringing, uh, the best memories that, that I have with, with, with my, my family are, are those times when we were gathered around the table. And we spent countless hours around the table, laughing talking, eating, sometimes crying, uh, getting in some fights. Uh, my dad was a uh, white-collar guy, but for some reason, <laughs> dinner time, he'd always be in his tidy whiteies and a t-shirt. I don't know why, but <laughs> it's good memories. <laughs> College. I mean, college was incredible uh, for me, and when I think about my best memories, it's, it was with my friends around the table, eating meals together. Um, and, and not just even eating just with my friends, but um, having meals with people outside of, of, of just my friend group, and getting to know other people, people from other parts of the world. Um, Anytime I've been in another part of the world, I've been to Pakistan, I've been to Romania, I've been to Africa, I've been to Israel, I've been to Jordan. Um, the things I remember, the, the, the things that left the, the strongest impression on me uh, were, were the times around a table, eating. Uh, in fact, just a couple of years ago when, when we were in Jordan, I remember the first night we got there, and, and the Middle East is so good about this because so much of their life is, is about the meal. Um, Jordanian Christians welcomed us, and I mean, they threw their favorite food before us for five hours. We just hung out. By the end of the night, it's like we know, knew them our whole lives. And, and then uh, probably three, four, five days later, I remember being in the home of, of a Syrian refugee. This was just a two-room cement flat, and... I mean, in the course of time, because in, in, in that context, you don't sit, you actually recline on the floor with these pillows, and you could see the joy in their faces that we were actually in their home, and over that time, I mean, the mom just kept getting up, going into the kitchen, coming back in, three, four times, she just kept throwing with just their meager means, whatever they had, so that we could eat uh, what to them was, was their best food, and I remember... Uh, Maybe the, the son who had just graduated from college could see how I was just uh, responding to this. Um, he says that when we, are, when we eat, we are all one family. And that, that, that was a Muslim talking to a Christian. That was an Arab talking to an America, American. When we eat, we are one family. 
And, and we see this throughout the biblical story that, that the kingdom of heaven is often depicted as, as a banquet, as a feast, as, as, a, as a big party. And Christians, though, historically have had this uncomfortable relationship with food, with meals. Even though when you stop and think about it, God is the one who created food um, and, and actually allows for us to co-create with him uh, to, to, to make food the way that we like it. He made our bodies in such a way where he put taste buds in our mouths so that, that, that we could be satisfied with good food. And, and, and just right now, just stop and think because you're probably going to be there in a matter of hours uh, eating something that you really like. What comes to your mind right now? A big juicy burger? Come on, throw some things out right now. Ham. Ham. <laughs> Last night it was bacon, but you were close. <laughs> bacon. Case closed now. Once you say bacon, it's kind of like, all right. Um, just think about a juicy piece of bacon. I mean, we're all Gentiles for the most part in this room anyway. <laughs> I mean, food makes us happy. At least good food does. Now think about when we do good food together. I mean, think about what we have to do. We have to stop. We have to slow down. We actually have to sit. We have to face each other. And that alone just sets the table for deep relationship to happen. Maybe this is why so much of Jesus' ministry was around the table. Him eating, him drinking, banqueting, feasting, partying. In fact, in the Gospels, there are three times where it said this, says, the Son of Man came. The Son of Man, of course, is Jesus' reference about himself, referring to Daniel 7, this king of all kings. Um, the Son of Man came, what? To seek and to save the lost. That's his ministry. It also says, the Son of Man came to be a ransom for, for many. To give up his life. That's how Jesus came to save the lost. It also says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. This is how Jesus came to seek the lost. Jesus is the hospitality of God. He is showing us the heart of God. And, and we don't often depict the kingdom of heaven as a feast or a party or, or, or uh, a delicious meal, um, part of it is because we're Greek. We're Westerners. Um, and, and, and the Greek philosophers, Plato, Socrates, um, they taught that the material world, which includes, of course, our body, it, it includes food and things like this, was created by a demiurge or a Satan, and therefore is evil. Think about that. And then they taught that a good God is the God who created your soul, which is your real you, and in that real you, your soul is good and eternal, but it's trapped inside uh, this bad you, this physical you, and, and, and that spirituality then is retreating from a material world, abstaining from things that we call the flesh, and somehow we are set free. Our souls are set free. 
And some of you are like, yeah, that's exactly right. No, that's Greek. That's not biblical. Read the end of Colossians 2. Paul says this is just hollow spirituality. Think about this. Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard. Now, he wasn't a glutton or a drunkard, I don't think. (laughs) Um, But it's because Hebrew spirituality isn't retreating and abstaining from the physical and material world. Hebrew spirituality is loving God with everything, in everything. It's loving God in our body and in our soul. It's loving God on, on Monday as well as Sunday. In fact, the highest form of worship to a Hebrew is your work. Because your work is your calling. And the word for work and the word for worship in Hebrew is the same word because our work is our worship. And yet a Greek thinks that they need to leave work to worship, that they need to retreat from the world to worship, that they need to stop doing what's normal and earthy and do something that is spiritual that will somehow work them into this spiritual experience. Listen, that's Gnostic spirituality. God's spirituality isn't even so much fasting, it's feasting. And it's not for the purpose of of self-indulgence, but it's a way to taste and see that the Lord is good when we participate in his creation in this way, in in a way where it causes us to lift our eyes to heaven and, and say what the psalmist says, bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me. He keeps writing, he says, who satisfies our appetites with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagle the last time he did that and at the end of our Bibles in Revelation 3 Jesus said I stand at the door and knock and again that's not a picture of him standing at the door of your heart that's him standing at the door of a church of a fellowship and what Jesus is saying is I want to come in and I want to come in so we can sup sup is the verb form of the word supper It's the last meal of the day in that world, and that meal was a feast. Jesus is saying, let me in so we can feast together. And so this is a strong thread of of Jesus wanting to feast uh, with us, uh, the kingdom of heaven being a banquet that runs through the whole Bible. Uh, Today we're going to go to the beginning of the story uh, when the world had just gone dark. It's dark because it lost the power source. the, the, the garden is no more. Um, God's, uh, the, the world is unplugged from God. And it's in total chaos. But yet in this dark world, there's a little flicker of light. His name is Abraham. God begins through this man, his whole project to redeem, reclaim, restore, uh, recreate a broken world. He does it with Abraham when he says, Abraham, leklaka, I want you to get up and start walking. I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to leave your homeland, your comfort, and life as you know it. Um, And I want to take you to a land I will show you. In other words, Abraham, I want you to trust me with everything that you have. Abraham does and becomes the father of a people who 
trust God. Here's the irony of Abraham before we step in our text today. (laughs) Abraham lives this heroic, huge life with massive legacy. And the way that he does it is through the mundane. Through just mundane faithfulness to God. In fact, uh, one of the people that I read a lot, Jonathan Sachs, he's the chief rabbi uh, in England. This is what he says about Abraham. As the founder of Judaism, also Christianity would call him the founder and Islam would call Abraham their founder. As the founder, though, of Judaism, Abraham gives us a vision of what it is to live directly and immediately in the presence of God who knows our thoughts, our hopes, our fears, our dreams. This involves a radically new kind of heroism. Not the heroism of of, of the Greeks, but a heroism of ordinary life, of decency and goodness, integrity and faithfulness. The humble, oh man, I got to say that word. (laughs) That kind of heroism (laughs) of being willing to live by one's convictions through all that the world thinks otherwise. Just think of that. Do you have convictions? And listen to this last statement. Being true to the call of God, not to the noise of now. The noise of now is noisy. And it tells us who we are, what we need to have, what we need to become. And somehow Abraham could see through that and beyond that because his eyes were fixed on God and he trusted him. But our story today is actually, actually, if there is a story of heroism in Abraham's life, it's, it's this one. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 14. Okay, so this is, uh, to pick up in the story, Abraham has trusted God. He's now living in the land that God shows him. As he's living in this land, four kings from the east, one of those being Babylon, uh, join forces against Abraham's world, and they rout the cities of Abraham's world. They take with them children, women, all the spoils of war, except here's the thing they didn't take into account. This Hebrew, this outsider, this weirdo, that's what Hebrew means. That, 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 the fact that God is with this man. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 14, beginning at verse 12. So a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham, the weirdo. Now Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Anar all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken, he called out to his 318 trained men born in his household and went and pursued as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He discovered all the goods, brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. And after Abram returning from defeating 
Catalaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet Abram in the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, also came out and brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I'm the one who made Abraham great. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anar, Eshol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, so first question, why is Abram going to war? Well, if you remember the meaning of redeem, uh, redeem is whenever someone from the household is marginalized, it's the father's responsibility to uh, use whatever resources he has to restore that marginalized person to the household. Abraham is the father of a household. Lot is, is a part of that household. So it's his responsibility to redeem Lot, even if it means selling the farm or recklessly uh, going into war to risk his life to save him. It's not an option for Abram. So I love this. Uh, verse 14, Abram straps on his sword and he goes with his 300 men. Come on, the Greeks have their story uh, of the 300 uh, the Bible also has its story of the 300. And verse 15 and 16, he miraculously defeats these four kings. So now picture Abram. He's returning home as this great victor with all the freed captives, all the spoils of war, probably this huge train of, of that following behind him. And verse 17 says that he comes to this valley called Valley of the King. Now, we know this valley today. It's the Kidron Valley. In fact, let me show you a PowerPoint of this. Here's the valley, and you can see that it runs between two hills that now make up Jerusalem. Uh, the hill on the left, does anyone know what that's called? Mount of Olives. Or later it will be called the Mount of Anointing because later in the story all of the kings will be anointed uh, on the Mount of Olives. Then you go into the valley of the Kidron Valley and then you go back up to the right and you see that uh, kind of walled, it's actually the platform, uh, the platform that Herod put in place uh, on which uh, the second temple stood. But as Abraham is, is walking through this valley, uh, in, in that day it was the city of Salem. And it's on what hill? Right there, what's that hill? It's Moriah, Mount Moriah. What's the significance of Mount Moriah, especially in the Abraham story? 
Exactly. Uh, years after this event, God is going to come to Abraham again, and he's going to say, Abraham, it's time to walk again. And Abraham's going to say, okay, where, God? And God's going to say, I want you to go to that mountain, to Mount Moriah. In fact, I want you to go there with your son, your firstborn son, Isaac, because I want you to offer him as a sacrifice on that hill. And I know that's such a strange text, uh, but, but, but the way that I look at it, it's almost like God at the beginning of the story is saying, Abraham, you know that down the road, I'm going to get in your shoes, literally. But right now, for these three days, I want you to get in my shoes. I want you to take your son, and I want you to take him to that hill and offer him as a sacrifice and we know at the end of those three days, Isaac is spared because God says to him, Abraham, it's my job. I will provide the lamb. So Abraham then calls that place Yahweh, which means the Lord provides. So when you put Yahweh with Salem, Yahweh Salem, you have Jerusalem. It's the place where God provides Salem, Shalom, peace. So it's in this valley that these two kings come out to greet Abraham. The first is Bera, the king of Sodom. And we got introduced to him at the beginning of this chapter, which we didn't read. But, but Bera means evil. And Sodom in, in, in the Bible is the city that symbolizes evil. And we're not just talking about um, the evil of sexual perversion um, that's just the fruit of a deeper root. Um, the Bible talks about the sin of, 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 of Sodom in Ezekiel 16 by, by describing it as this haughtiness and this pride and this arrogance that led to complacency that then led to injustice and exploitation of people. So you have that king. Then you have this other king, this mysterious figure called Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. That's in verses 18 to 20. And, and think about the significance of, 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 of Salem and what Salem will, will come to mean to the story. I mean, this is Jerusalem, and, and Jerusalem is, is, is the epicenter of, of God's story. God's going to replant Eden in, in this place, where he's going to dwell and walk among his people. Um, this is going to be the very soil where God's going to keep his promise to Abraham of providing that lamb. Not just so that Isaac can be spared, not just so that Abraham's descendants can be spared, but the very lamb, the lamb of God for the whole world. If I could just have that PowerPoint really quick. How cool is it to think that if this picture continued to the left in that valley is Gethsemane? And to think if this picture continued up there on that hill to the right is Golgotha. We have a promise-keeping God. A promise-making promise God, promise-keeping God. So, so Melchizedek is, is the king of this city. His name isn't so much a name as it is a title. Melech is the word for king, so Melchi is my king. Sedek 
is that word I introduced you last week, which is translated righteousness, but it's not righteousness as we often think of it as, as moral purity. Hebrew has another word for this. Um, whatever comes to your mind when you think social justice, um, it's, it's that righteousness. The king of righteousness, Melchizedek. Can you see Abram standing before these two kings in this valley, one whose name means evil, the other whose name means king of righteousness. Now notice how Abraham treats these two kings. Verses 22 and 23. To the king of Sodom. I love what he says. First of all, he gives everything back to him. Everything. And then he says, not even a thread or a sandal will I keep. Because I don't want you, king, to get any of the glory. But more importantly, Abraham will not allow for his heart to be infected in any way with the things of Sodom. Because he knows that when you possess those things, those things end up possessing you. And it doesn't even take but a little bit. And he also knows that, that Sodom is so seductive. I mean, I'm going to be in Israel soon and there's still uh, a tree that's called Sodom's apple. And I, I love it when we run across it because it grows only in the desert and you come upon it and uh, when it's about from me to this pole away, um, it, it, it has this fruit that looked like these huge grapefruit. And then you, you, you pick the fruit and, and, and you squeeze into it and it just goes poof. It's totally empty on the inside. In fact, it's poisonous. And the reason why they call it Sodom's apple is because uh, Sodom is, is something that seduces our hearts because on the outside it looks so good. But on the inside, it's not just empty, it's poisonous. We live in Sodom today. My kids go to school to Sodom five days a week. Our universities, the marketplace, we live in Sodom. How do you relate with Sodom? Because if we're going to live the huge life like Abraham, to have his kind of impact, to leave his kind of legacy, we're going to be thoughtful about Sodom. We're not going to take from Sodom, whether it be our significance, our identity, um, our, our security. We don't take from this evil king or this evil city, not even a sandal or a strap. Now look at how Abraham responds to Melchizedek. Look at verse 20. He gives a tenth of all the spoils of war to Melchizedek. What's a tenth? What do we call a tenth when you give a tenth? A tithe. His first and best is going to the king of righteousness. Tithing in the Bible is an act of worship. You only tithe God. 
Now think about this. Abraham just achieved this ridiculously great victory. I mean, you could say Abraham is the ultimate king right now because he just defeated the five kings who defeated the four kings, and he now is maybe king of the world in that. And yet here he encounters one greater, and Abram knows it. Now, one of the unique things that makes this king of righteousness, Melchizedek, so great is not only is he king, but our text also says that he's a priest. And he's not just any priest, but he's a priest to the one true God. So he's a priestly king. He's a kingly priest. Who is this guy? What's he doing in, in the story? Because it's like he comes out of nowhere, then poof, he's gone Here's the deal. God not only loves a good story, God loves a mystery. And he's given us a good mystery. Because the next time Melchizedek is going to show up will be a thousand years after Abraham when another righteous king is ruling in Salem. Uh, that's King David. David is going to write one of the most important texts in the Bible, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted text by the New Testament authors. Jesus quotes Psalm 110 more than any other text. Psalm 110 is the text that Peter preaches um, the sermon um, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Psalm 110 starts out this way. The Lord said to my Lord. And we're already confused. Like, what are you talking about? The Lord said to my Lord. Well, if we had the original language, we'd see that there are two different words for Lord. It literally reads, Yahweh, which is God's name, Yahweh said to my Adonai, or my king. So now think about this. David, you could almost call uh, Israel's ultimate king. He's looking into this future at this future king. He's looking up to this king, and he's calling this king my king. So we know then that this king that David is calling my king is the Messiah. So this should really read, the Lord said to my king, my Messiah. And how does that go? Sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. Wow, what a, what a messianic thought that is. That when Messiah finally comes, not only will someone as great as David say, that is my king, uh, but this king, with all God's enemies, they're going to be right at Messiah's feet. And don't just think the nations, but think about all those spiritual forces, all the forces of evil. They will be at the feet of Christ And if it doesn't stop there, David keeps writing, and, and then right in the middle of Psalm 110, he says, and my king is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And now it's like, oh gosh, I just lost you again, because we're talking about a priest, and that kind of goes over our mind. Um, but let me put it in this term. Do you know what you look like right now? Because we all walk around with, 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 with this mental image of 
of how we appear to other people. And, and, and don't tell me right now that you're above this because think about how much time we spend in front of mirrors. Think about how many pictures we actually take of ourselves. And we even have a term for that today because we do it so often called selfies. Um, and then how we post these pictures. But before we post them, we doctor them up. We get the best ones, right? Because we live in a culture today that is just obsessed with how we look. And we all have this sense of, of how we look, how we appear. And I'm not even just talking physically right now. I'm talking even morally. Like, how do we appear? And I know, just from living enough life and doing the job that I do, that a lot of people in this room right now feel really ugly. And I'm not just talking physically, but I'm talking in terms of your character, in, in, in terms of your morality deep down. And, and, and then the game that you, you play is, is how do I cover up all the ugly? Let me ask this even deeper. Do you know what you look like to God? Do you feel beautiful? Do you feel ugly? See, this is why the ancients said that, that we need a priest, because they knew all their ugly. And, and, and they knew that to, to uh, move towards a, a holy God, they needed someone who would wash them up, who, who would cleanse them, who would deal with all of their ugly. And this is exactly what a priest did. He deals with our ugly and makes us presentable to a holy God. Now, I see David as he is making his personal copy of Torah, because that's what God instructed all the kings to do. And I see him coming to Genesis 14 and realizing, wow, as great as I thought Abraham was, there's still one greater than Abraham, one so great that Abraham is brought to a place of worship. Who is this guy? Who blesses Abraham in the same fashion that God has blessed Abraham. Who prays to the same God that Abraham prays to. And, and the answer to this mystery, um, even though we already kind of know the answer to this mystery, um, is found though in Hebrews 7. You can go there or you can hear me read it. This Melchizedek was king of Salem. We've already learned that. Priest of the Most High God, we've already learned that. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, we know that. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything, uh, we know that. First, his name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, we just learned that. Then also king of Salem means king of peace, we just learned that. But listen to this. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days and end of life, resembling, literally the word there is made like the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. Think about how great he was. <sighs> yeah, as great as Christ. This eternal king priest who comes out to meet Abraham is, is not this local king of that little village, Salem, it's Christ, the king of God's eternal city, who descends in the valley that day and comes face to face with Abraham. 
wow, what an encounter. And what does this king of righteousness do when he, when he meets Abraham? He spreads a banquet for him. A banquet of bread and wine. In other words, if you want to know how this priest king will put the whole world back together again, it's this simple. He's going to offer the world a banquet of bread and wine. Now, one of the great lies of the modern world is that we all feel like we're pretty good people. We live in a pretty good world. The problem sometimes flares up. It's nothing that we can't solve on our own through our intellect, uh, through our capabilities. People think if we can just get the right politicians, if we can just get the economy fixed, if we can just get the right job or find the right wife or get the right education or live in the right neighborhood or get the right toy, that everything's just going to be all right. I'm telling you, our problem is far more deeper than that. Our world is absolutely broken in every way. And we need more than, not less than, but we need more than a king who will come and destroy evil. And I'll tell you why this is. It's because we've been kicked out. We've been banished from the garden. We've lost the environment for which we've been made. Whether you know this or not, we have been made to know God, to walk intimately with him, to walk with the holy. And the only way back into God the only way back into his garden is every single one of us. We need a priest who can get us back into God. We need a priest. And, and Isaiah 64 uh, sums up what our problem is in, in this regard. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are nothing but, but filthy rags, filthy clothes. It's a profound image describing our ugly. And we think about clothes, we, we think fashion, but, but clothes to the ancients describe their status, namely their status before God. Because here's what Isaiah is telling us, left to ourselves, we could never get back into God. We could never get back into that garden for which God made us. We could never ascend God's holy hill. We are way too repulsive. And so many of us today still think that we can somehow cleanse ourselves, that we can remedy our ugly. I mean, why do you need to constantly prove yourself? Why are you so driven to succeed? Why are you such a perfectionist? Why are you such a pleaser? Why are you always working out, trying to make your body look good? Why are you always uh, covering up your faults, hiding your mistakes? You're washing. You're trying to cleanse yourself. We cannot cleanse ourselves. We need a priest. And the message of the Bible is that we have one. We have one who removes all the ugly, all the filth, all the stains. Yesterday I did a wedding. Bride and groom were just stunningly beautiful. 
Listen to what God says. In Isaiah 61, verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is what God is going to do. He's not going to just forgive us. He's going to make us beautiful like on our wedding day. He says, I'm going to dress you in my righteousness. And then when you ask, how did this king of righteousness do this? He, he does it through the banquet that he offers us. That bread is his body broken. That wine is his blood that was spilt. He who knew no sin became sin. Think about it. The righteous king became all of our ugly so that we could become the righteousness of God. Or to put this in the language of a fairy tale, the beauty became the beast to make the beast absolutely beautiful. And this king of righteousness says, I stand at the door and I knock. And I invite you into my banqueting room. It doesn't matter how filthy we are. It doesn't matter how stained we are. We have a a, a king priest, a priest king, who offers us a banquet of bread and wine that when we eat it, doesn't just forgive us. It makes us beautiful. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would accept your invitation and that we would indulge in the banquet of your bread and your wine that you offer us. And God, that we would repent of trying to cleanse ourselves and remedying our unclean. And God, that we would have the faith of Abraham to leave this world and to not find our worth and significance in Sodom, but our hearts would be wholly yours. Our lives would be wholly yours. For your sake, amen.